Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut as we dissect this week's tech news. We've got new products from Cisco and Checkpoint, a cloudy new Verizon offering, and a story with probably more than you wanted to know about toilets. Oh, sponsored today by Palo Alto Networks. You can see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateway, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Palo Alto Networks has produced a virtual event where you can hear how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization automate costly and complex IT operations with AI-powered digital experience management and do things like connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Web Gateway. Go to paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment or see the show notes for episode 466 uh, for the link. And it's a double Palo Alto Network show today on the Tech Bytes podcast, also sponsored by Palo Alto Networks. We're going to talk about the risk that IoT and OT devices can present and how to mitigate those risks. IoT can be tricky because these devices need network access, but you can't often put endpoint security agents on them. We'll talk about applying zero trust principles to IoT and OT devices. All right, let's dive into the news. Uh, we'll start with some FU, some follow-up. Uh, last week, Greg, you and I talked about a study out of the University of Pittsburgh that looked at the impact of return to office or RTO policies on company performance and employee satisfaction. The study found that while company performance didn't improve, employee satisfaction went down. Uh, a listener wrote in to share their own experience. Uh, they say they'd been uh, almost a year into RTO at a company they used to work for. The effects were evident. The company started tracking employee attendance in the office and tied managers' performance to employee in-office attendance rates and overall the culture and atmosphere degraded. Uh, this person says there's been employee attrition. The company had found it hard to hire new employees, which led to additional workloads on remaining staff. And this, while this listener is sympathetic to working in the office, things got so bad they eventually left. Uh, they wrote, there's definitely a major power struggle going on with companies and employees, and this study correlates strongly with what I have experienced. Yeah, this is this is pretty much what we're seeing. The people who force the return to the office um, are finding that people don't want to come. So when they get to the office, they're angry. You know, they've probably just sat through a half hour or an hour in a commute. Of course, uh -huh. there's a, a small group who aren't. And usually what we find is for everybody that I talk to about this, it nearly always comes down to somebody, some sort of bad management. So the people who are sitting in the food chain somewhere, they're micromanagers or they're not confident that they understand the job and they feel that they have to look you in the eyes to see what's happening. Now, I'm sensitive to the fact that sometimes cooperation and stuff needs to happen face to face. And mm -hmm. I don't think anybody is saying we are never going to, you know, like there is never any need for anybody to be in the office ever. I think that's an extreme position that very right. few people are taking. Right. There are some businesses that are built that way, like packet pushes, for example. There are people in packet pushers who I've never met in person, <laughs> quite a few of them increasingly. And it can work, but it only works for certain businesses. If you're, a, you know, if you need to do things, sometimes you do need to get together. But nearly always these discussions are, you know, company mandates a return to office, fumbles it, doesn't give people a reason to come back to work, doesn't recognize that the costs of coming to work have now changed. Once upon a time, people accepted the cost was in their, it comes out of their pocket. Now they're saying, well, if you want me to come back to work, I have to now fight childcare. I have to pay for commutes. I have to pay for petrol and parking, you know, uh -huh. whatever it is. Uh -huh. And now I'm spending two hours a day in a car where before I could do the same amount of work or I could spend that two hours working on projects and things. And now forcing it back, just if people have, get a real thing in a craw about it, right? Yeah. But these people just don't care. Executives and managers, yeah. Yeah. And um, increasingly, like I was on uh, LinkedIn the other day and I posted somebody, a boomer venture capitalist, really well-known figure in the industry. And I dropped in on one of his comments and called him out on it and said, here's the data that says that what you, what you think is right is wrong. And he is not happy, <laughs> I promise you, <laughs> at being called out in public about, you know, what is fundamentally a lack of competency. It just, I want it this way, therefore everybody else is going to follow it. That's really what it, what the attitude came down to. Yeah. There's another way this works out as well with all of the layoffs going on. Um, I saw a piece of evidence this week where a Google employee uh, was responding to a journalist's questions and they're talking about the layoffs and then how bad the motivation was inside the company. And the, the person said, we get that execs are excited about Google's future, why should we be excited when we might get laid off and not be around to share in that future? If we lose our jobs and our equity grants, it's cold comfort that Google is succeeding off our half work and we don't get rewarded for it, but you do. That's a pretty brutal take on it, right? Very honest, though. I think. Yeah. <laughs> People are realizing so, that your, yeah. your employer is not your friend or your ally. 
Yeah, I think if the tech industry is going to continue to demand that you return to the office and demand that your compensation is going to be received in shares or, you know, uh, some sort of equity grants or something in the future, but they can sack you, you know, ditch you at any time, there's that's the compact doesn't work in that situation, right? And especially as the tech industry has reaching the top, you know, the, the tech industry is up again this week, was down over Christmas. You know, if if the tech industry falls away, People are going to be pretty unhappy when their share portfolio, you know, these equity grants or these stock options turn into nothing uh, as the tech industry does eventually have to fall or moderate or stop growing. So I think there's going to be this whole return to office thing is going to be um, combined with other things. And I think there's a real risk out there that something's going to go wrong. So we shall see. All right. As always, we appreciate comments, corrections, clarifications. Uh, you can hit us all up with that at packetpushers.net slash FU. Uh, let's dive into the news. Cisco Live in Amsterdam recently concluded. We've got some highlights and announcements from that event. First up, Cisco M7 UCS rack and blade servers will now be available with NVIDIA Tensor Core GPUs. Cisco and NVIDIA are also partnering on joint validated designs for AI clusters because every news announcement these days has to have AI in it. <laughs> this is one of those announcements that, uh, of course, as with the Cisco Live event, Cisco marketing has constipated itself for a couple of months now. And so they flushed out a whole bunch of news. There was a whole bunch of announcements this week. We'll pick a couple of them. Uh, this one is about NVIDIA and Cisco partnering. Really, this is about um, Cisco taking on board NVIDIA's Tensor GPU for AI processing, embedding them inside of Cisco's, some certain hardware platforms of Cisco's UCS rack and blade servers, yeah. but it also includes NVIDIA's software frameworks as well. So this is turnkey solutions, which is increasingly what we're seeing. NVIDIA doesn't want to be out there at this point in time selling its AI enterprise products to the enterprise. It wants other people to sell it for them. And of course, we know that in the long term, that's not how it's going to work. Look at Broadcom with VMware taking customers direct. But for now, NVIDIA wants to you know, sell its products through Dell, through HPE, through Cisco. And so they've gone through the usual foo-for-hour of designing validated reference architectures with Cisco validated designs. Um, so there's Cisco designs for Flash, FlexPod and FlashStack. So if you're using uh, NetApp for storage, then you've got your thing for that with the FlexPod type of stuff. Um, it also supports Cisco Networking Cloud. So Cisco's got its uh, multi-cloud manager and its networking cloud. So if you're trying to bridge between on-prem and off-prem, there's some exports there. They have done the integration with Cisco Nextbooks dashboard and Cisco Intersight, they claim. Um, that feels like <laughs> a bit aspirational to me. Cisco's not normally um, able to get things out that fast. But, okay, let's take them on face value. And also, Cisco went on to pump up about its digital experience monitoring and its observability platforms here. I don't think NVIDIA had anything to do with these um, in terms of endpoint monitoring or observability cloud because it would take a long time for Cisco to be able to do anything with those to write modules and integrate with them. And yet NVIDIA really has been on a tear in just the last 12 months. Yeah, I think the digital experience monitoring was separate from the NVIDIA announcements. It's more about its uh, Cisco observability platform. Mm. Do you think it's a separate announcement? I, it's all part of the same press release, NVIDIA Secure AI. I'm not 100% sure how you can say that Thousand Eyes and NVIDIA are a part of and the digital experience one, or whether they're just slapping it into the press release to buff it out a bit. I think it's slapping it into the press release to buff it out, yes, because I think mm. there's also a standalone one about the observability stuff. Um, they're also talking about uh, how Cisco Observability Platform is now incorporating extended Berkeley packet filters or eBPF so you can get kernel-level visibility inside your Kubernetes clusters. I think that's probably tied into their acquisition of isovalent, but that acquisition hasn't closed yet, so they didn't mention isovalent specifically in the announcement. Yeah, you've got to imagine that <laughs> they had something like that before, right? EBPF is the obvious way. I think isovalence is going to give them a scalable customer base. Right, you know, isovalence built on an open source project called Cilium, and Cisco probably was using Cilium, mm. but they don't mention Cilium or isovalent. They just say EBPF, so I think they'll no, be there'll quiet. be various obligations around that. Yeah. I think yeah. at the end of the day here, we need to look at, you know, there's NVIDIA, the, the AI company, and then there's NVIDIA, the networking company. And from Cisco's point of view, it must be a bit galling that NVIDIA networking, I just was reading a, an analyst report this week, and they're pointing out that NVIDIA networking is now a $10 billion run rate business. Really? In the last, yeah. So that is that is bigger than Cisco's data center, entire data center business at $10 billion a quarter. But um, NVIDIA does have uh, DPUs, right, as well. So That's, it's yeah. actually got some... 
I'm guessing that number is driven by DPUs and not by sales of InfiniBand switches. I think it'll be both. I think that, you know, keep in mind that NVIDIA is selling a lot of gear to data centers. That's true. Especially cloud-based data centers, and they will be InfiniBand based mm -hmm. um, for the time being. Of course, they're migrating away to um, Spectrum Spectrum X with Rocky in them. Mm -hmm. But I think that'll take a little while. I mean, it's hard to remember that, it, you know, NVIDIA has only been doing data center. This is in a year. It's gone from effectively... I think it was a, you know, Mellanox was kind of like a 250 million a quarter business, maybe 500 million. Now it's a $10 billion run rate business. Just amazing to just ship that amount of gear. Yeah. Um, in a thing. But already their networking is effectively bigger than Cisco. Will it stay that way for very long? I don't know. But this is not a networking announcement. This is I'm putting NVIDIA AI and the NVIDIA software frameworks. So I can go and buy a bundle from Cisco UCS servers and its racks and its you know, storage and all that stuff with its storage partners and then put it in and away I'll go. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, speaking of Cisco's uh, observability platform, Greg, you had some more thoughts on this in the announcement that came out. Yeah, Cisco has been getting big into digital experience monitoring and RUM, remote user monitoring and application monitoring. And I hadn't really looked into their observability platform, which is what they call it, observability platform. And after spending a few hours reading up on the documentation and poking at it and trying to find some information, it's sort of becoming clear to me that Cisco is going to make a big push around this. Yes. Or at least, you know, that's certainly the thrust is at the moment and they're definitely giving it a go. I, I'm slow to pick up on observability platform. I've seen it a few times, but it didn't strike me as something that necessarily was going to last for long. We've seen Cisco announce a lot of products in the software space and they sort of get a bit of a push and then customers don't really pick them up and then they fade fade backwards a little bit, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the challenge here is that Cisco really needs to find new businesses. Um, it's sort of losing control of the networking market as it slips away where Arista, you know, and white box disaggregation have changed the networking market, leaving Cisco, you know, Cisco is a very successful networking company. It's still profitable, but it's in low growth enterprise IT areas. It's not selling a lot of gear to the mega clouds. Um, it's still substantial in service provider space, but service providers are changing to different models and the value of routing is, you know, decreasing. Still important, but it's not a huge, you know, 20% per year growth market that it once was. And um, I think Cisco needs to find new ways to grow. And then in, in the last, uh, I want to say three years, it's bought all, multiple companies in the observability or the monitoring or the, visit, you know, application monitoring space, notably AppDynamics, which is a $5 billion purchase, Thousand Eyes, which is a billion plus, Sam Knows, which was a couple of billion, Exceedian, Smart Look, and Epsigon. And that's just going back three years, Drew, not even not even three years. Right. And we can add Isovalent to that mix now, too. Yeah, I'm not so sure if it's an observability platform. It's almost... It is. It is. It is, Yeah. I'd say it's a connectivity and observability is bolted on the side of it, but still. But I think the interesting part about the observability platform is it's a product that sits across the entire of, entirety of your network. Right. And when remember how you to be open view from 20 years ago, how it was meant to be a platform and then yes. you bring all these other applications on top of it. And it was kind of a mess and really hard to deploy and integrate and operate. Yes, I do remember yeah. that. And, and so the idea was is that you know the observability platform will provide a bunch of functionality and features in it. And then there's the ability for other people to come along and build on top of it. Cisco tried to do the same thing with ACI for a while. Didn't go so well for that. We saw the same thing trying to happen in the campus with uh, the software defined infrastructure in the campus, trying to get the security vendors to come along and run their firewalls on top of that platform. And that didn't really take off. So I'm not too sure why Cisco would try to do it again. I don't think that business middle model works at the current era or the current point of the market. Because who wants to tie their product? Like if you're, say, Checkpoint, which is a firewall company, do you really want to tie the future of your firewall product to Cisco's observability platform? You're gonna, you know, bring it along and slap it on top of the campus or, you know, Cisco's data center product. Is there, you know, what's the value in that? I mean, I guess to, to your point earlier, Cisco needs to move into new markets. So observability is a good one, and it's got, uh, which is going along with their business model, one of everything for every use case. So App Dynamics is about monitoring the uh, performance of your applications, uh, doing that deep uh, application inspection. Thousand Eyes is about monitoring the WAN. Acedian is for the service provider networks. Uh, Isovalent is going to be mm. for monitoring your Kubernetes clusters. So it's again that one of everything mm. model. They, I don't know if the observability platform is going to try to integrate all that into one super product, uh, but they've got everything for all your use cases. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thrust. So, <laughs> <laughs> Good which luck. Is, you, know, <laughs> you know, so the idea is, is that, you know, imagine, you know, I'm, I want to use this particular app, 
But what I have to do is go and buy Cisco's observability platform first and deploy that and then put the app on top of that and then right. deploy the app. Right. Um, I'm I'm not 100% sure that in 2024 that's a viable business model. I think sure. most companies would want to be much more in control of their destiny. And so you could say, you know, so the counter argument to this took me a while to realize this is what happens, Drew, in, say, five years' time when we've got 10 observability tools in our network and they're all pulling data from the network? Mm -hmm. Is there a... You know, is there a thing that says, well, actually, what we need is a central observability platform to funnel out all the data? <laughs> and is Cisco the company that could win that, you know, be one of the market leading products in that space? Arguably, yes. So I, I don't want to seem to be, you know, negative about the whole thing. Uh, but I do wonder if, you know, with Cisco's reputation for being, you know, reassuringly expensive, customer supports of modest quality. It likes to control customers very closely. Do companies want to partner with them or would we much rather see some sort of open source platform emerge, which is what usually happens in this space? I don't know. It's a tried and true method of there being lots mm -hmm. of little products to solve individual problems. And then someone comes along and says, that's a pain. Let's make it into one big product that usually doesn't work very well. So we'll see. Yeah, historically, happens. that's not... <laughs> And it's very expensive. <laughs> the game of open source is, is lit, you know, people who try to do big things don't really get very far. But I think, you know, if, if you take that view that, like, everybody's going to have an observability platform, you know, and if you end up with a dozen of them, you know, in five or ten years' time, what's the rationalization? Do you try and do this? And it has to be said that Cisco's observability platform is very comprehensive. Lots of apps, lots of features, lots of functionality. So um, there certainly is something there. Whether it'll go the way they think it'll go is yet to be seen. So... But that's okay because that's how products work. They don't run on rails anymore. They wander down the road, you know, like you're walking home from the pub. A little bit of wandering here, maybe a wrong turn. <laughs> that's right. Hopefully you get back on the road. Don't yeah, drop your keys a, down the, the sewer. Yes. That's right. Don't get run over. <laughs> All right, links in the show notes if you want to check it out. We'll move on. Uh, in a recent episode, we talked about some telco woes, and a listener sent us a link to an article about Verizon launching a multi-cloud management offering as part of its Network as a Service, or NAS, platform. Thank you for letting us know about this. The offering is called NAS Cloud Management. Uh, it's meant to make it easy to set up connections to multiple public clouds and provide a unified online portal to monitor and manage those connections and get a view into application performance. So Verizon says from this portal, you'll be able to do things like see your overall service health, watch network traffic, uh, see your global network cloud connections, monitor application performance, and issue management tickets. Now, this is a bit of a weird one. Like, they wrote off $5 billion in enterprise services last week. That's what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And now they're deploying new products in enterprise services. It's a bit, um, unless I misunderstand something, which is always possible. Well, I did uh, a little quite... digging, and I don't know if you ever saw the, the cartoon show Scooby-Doo, but here in the U.S. it was very popular. And inevitably, mm -hmm. at the end of the show, uh, they would pull the mask off the villain and be like, oh, it was you all the time. And I pulled the mask off this, and it's basically MPLS uh, is it's what's happening here. Yeah, it sounds to me like they bought, uh, they're reselling somebody else's visibility platform or observability platform. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> and um, they've managed to put some sort of GUI onto it, Skinner GUI. I don't, I, I find it hard to believe that Verizon would have built one internally, but getting some visibility on top of your legacy MPLS backbone would take away some of the reasons that customers are switching to SD-WAN. Because SD-WAN gives you the visibility. If you you know you sign up for an SD-WAN or a SASE, you get a full observability platform uh, built in, right? You don't need to go and buy an observability platform. You get one with it. Right. Um, and so this would be like, oh, but you don't have to go. We've got one. <laughs> right. So, so basically, yeah. it requires a gateway device at your premises. Verizon calls this gateway device a NAS Fabric Customer Edge, and then traffic will ride across Verizon's MPLS backbone and hit a second NAS Fabric Customer Edge, probably virtual, that resides in your VPC or VNet at the public cloud edge. Uh, I, I didn't couldn't find any details about this NAS Fabric Customer Edge. Um, I'm getting my information That's from so a data like sheet. But, uh, Sounds like an SD-WAN applied. Uh, like the, uh, yes, yes. They've come up with SD-WAN, uh, or they, yeah. they also sound like Akira, Alkira and Aviatrix, essentially. Well, maybe they've partnered with one of those companies for this particular product. You know, if you buy this, they come along and put this in. You know, they don't use what's there. They probably don't even use their existing MPLS tooling. They This goes on top so that they don't have to change anything. Because when you're that large, it's very difficult to, you know, start doing things embedded them in. Right. And um, if they are uh, partnering, they did not say anything about it in either the press release or the data sheet. So not no, sure. which is which is interesting because quite often they would say that. And one of the things to note here is that Verizon, of course, is very incumbent in a lot of large enterprises, especially for US, but also for globally. And they're often treated as a trusted advisor. They've been using that trusted advisor 
to handle the operational design. So in a lot of companies, they say, oh, you know, I've got network engineers, but I don't listen to them. The only people I trust for my WAN is Verizon salespeople, <laughs> which is bonkers, really. But there you go, because it's like asking a drug dealer if taking drugs is a good idea. You know the answer to that. <laughs> right, I do. <laughs> it, it, may be true, it may be true that, you know, who would know drugs better than your drug dealer? But I can also tell you I know exactly what your deal is going to tell you. Take more drugs. And so that's kind of what I feel is is actually happening here. Don't rely on your supplier to give you advice uh, without considering, you know, what they're going to say to you and, and be aware of, of what the alternatives are. Yes. Uh, but it does sound like Verizon uh, is hoping that you may, may be wanting to come to them if you've got uh, workloads in a variety of public clouds and you're having trouble managing all those network connections. I think... All these telcos, these service providers don't have a great reputation for customer service. Uh, they fight you tooth and nail on SLAs. I don't know if you want to also bring them into your cloud problems, but uh, that's your decision. <laughs> it's your pain, not mine. Yeah. Uh, in other Verizon news, Verizon and Vonage have signed a memorandum of understanding to, quote, introduce Verizon network APIs to the Vonage platform. Uh, the idea is to enable developers to access network services and capabilities of the Verizon network. Uh, the two companies are also going to collaborate on new APIs to also let developers build new applications that will use Verizon's network and Vonage's platform. I really can't work out why you would want to do that, but I assume this is trying to introduce services in the 5G pop. This talks a lot about 5G network APIs. And if you're doing voice applications, I imagine you can now do something on a Vonage API in the local pop or something. Um, why would you do this, Drew? Did you, you don't know why? I, I can't decode it. I really had a hard time figuring it out myself. And th th this is the most cautious of press releases. The language is really soft in terms of commitment. Uh, the two companies have, quote, entered into a memorandum of understanding that outlines their intention to introduce Verizon Network APIs to the Vonage platform. An outline is a draft, an intention to introduce. That's very passive language. So uh, this feels like a very tentative sort of like they don't really trust each other kind of agreement. And I'm not really sure what it's for, but they put out a press release. Now, on the other thing too is that you know Ericsson, of course, is a supplier to Vonage, so maybe they're, and they're struggling for revenue. Well, Vonage is a wholly owned subsidiary of Ericsson, so I guess they're trying yes. to squeeze some juice out of it. Yeah, maybe they said if we can put Vonage in your network, maybe we could make some money and share it with you. Yeah. So a bit weird, but you know Vonage talks about their communication platform as a service, CPaaS, that makes it easy for more than a community of a million developers to embed communications in application systems and workflows through communication IPIs. Okay, fine. But why would I do that inside Verizon's network, Drew? I can't see it. Yeah. If mm. there's a listener out there who maybe has some insights, hit us up, packetpushers.net slash FU. That's why we invented the internet, so we didn't have to rely on the telco to give it to us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Palo Alto Networks. You can see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateway, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. 2024 is year when companies will need to do more with less. As businesses grapple with economic uncertainty, it is more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions to reduce operational complexity and costs. Palo Alto Networks has produced a virtual event so you can learn how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization automate costly and complex IT ops with AI-powered digital experience management, connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Up Gateway, and unlock a better ROI through consolidation of point solutions with Prisma SASE. You can go to paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy-signature-moment or see the show notes for episode 466 to get that link. Thanks to Palo Alto Networks for being a sponsor. Back to the news. Checkpoint has announced a new offering called Infinity AI Copilot. It's an AI-based support tool for security teams. It's delivered via Checkpoint's SmartOne management console. It's trained on Checkpoint product documentation and knowledge-based articles. And because it's integrated with the SmartOne console, it also has context about individual customers' deployments and configurations of Checkpoint products. Uh, Ethan and I got a briefing on this, and Checkpoint outlined a couple of initial use cases for this uh, Infinity AI Copilot. For example, if you wanted to set up a new security policy, you could use natural language queries to get some help with that policy, and customers can apply that output from Copilot directly or use it as a starting point and make their own tweaks. Uh, Checkpoint also said the system could inform your threat analysis. For example, if your security team has detected a host behaving suspiciously, you can query Copilot again using natural language to get information such as what are the hosts this host may have interacted with, uh, more anomalous traffic coming from that host, uh, suggestions on how to maybe isolate that host, and so on. Well, are you inspired? You went through the, you sat through the briefing. I've done some poking and, and tried to read up on it. I, my initial reaction was, eh, everybody else has got it. Why not them? 
Yeah, I feel like it's a very modest uh, use of AI, but I also mm. think potentially very useful in part because it's mm. trained on checkpoints own documentation. Uh, so that gives me confidence that the output should generally be uh, of, of reasonable quality as opposed to getting it from an LLM mm. that's been trained on the entire internet. Uh, so I think, you know, that's a plus, and I'm sure they will find ways to expand and enhance this offering. Uh, but yes, uh, sort of out of the gate, a, a pretty modest rollout. I wonder if, you know, the idea of training AIs on tech support documentation has been prepared over the years would actually see a return to providing quality tech support. Um, <laughs> because plenty of people are pointing out, at, you know, in various discussions on various forums that I'm part of, just how bad vendor tech support is at the moment. You know, they're cutting headcount. <laughs> Uh, you know, all the sort of thing. And if you're training AI on the, the documentation produced by your TAC, you know, your technical support systems, but your technical support's ramping downhill pretty badly, they're not producing documentation or, you know, producing notes or whatever, arguably you're actually doing yourself a disservice. Is that a, is that a take? Is that a good take? Uh, uh, I could see that as potentially being an issue, but if, you know, the folks who actually wrote the products and wrote the documentation, presumably it should be good. Uh, maybe the knowledge support base articles over time would degrade uh, if you don't actually have support folks helping out. So I could I could see that. Yeah, we're not seeing the same level of quality of data, you know, like Cisco's sure. um, forums, for example, arguably that's not high, high quality signal, but internal documentation that your tech engineers write for each other, which they used to do a lot, but they don't do now, I'm told. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe you're actually doing yourself a disservice if you don't have a, a solid tech to feed these AI systems. But otherwise, I mean, one thing, Infinity AI Copilot is a hell of a mouthful, Drew. Like, it is. There's a lot like, there. You could just say we've got AI, you know, Checkpoint AI and call it that. But Copilot, I guess that's because Microsoft's using the word Copilot. But Infinity, like, that's a pretty bloviated. I mean, even OpenAI couldn't get that bloviated. That seems quite, uh, you know. I okay. think Infinity might be tied to one of their, like, business pillars. I don't remember, but yeah, it, it is a yeah. lot. It is a lot. The marketing got lot, their hands right? on it, so it's what yeah, happens. Needs to keep it a bit simpler, um, whatever. I didn't talk about um, charging anything for it, so there doesn't seem to be any mention. I think it's just going to be rolled out. Uh, that is still to TBD, um, whether there's uh, going to be a separate license fee to use Copilot. It'll just show up automatically. It's it's currently in preview, um, and select customers can get access to it. Um, and they intend to roll it out uh, yeah. QA very soon, but whether or not they're going to charge for it, they're still figuring out. I don't know if coming late to market is a feature or a bug, you know, Everybody else is out there already running AI in their security. And we've been talking to, well, Fortinet and Palo Alto obviously sponsor a lot of shows. Yeah. And they've been talking about AI for over a year, I think. So late, you know, is there any advantage in being late and seeing what everybody else has done, do you think? In the briefing, they wanted to make it clear that they've been doing AI and ML for years because they've been particularly in their, you know, threat monitoring and threat management systems where they're, you know, looking at billions and billions and billions of incidents they've they've had to use rely on automated systems machine learning and so on to to get signal out of all that noise uh, so they would say that they've been doing this for a long time now they're just bringing in this um, NLP capability natural language processing as a front end sort of uh, interface and I, they plan to roll it out more extensively to allow you to do more automated actions right now it's basically just a simpler kind of query system I think uh, so and you know what late to the market in some ways for me is fine because there's so much hype around AI. I don't really put a lot of stock in yeah. anything that any vendor says about their AI. So maybe coming later to the market is it's fine. It's it's what happens. I yeah. I don't yeah. have. A, I, I don't. Yeah. At least it didn't claim to be market leading. That's about the only. <laughs> right. you know, that's that's something. <laughs> that is. Something. I really appreciated that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and again, links in the show notes if you want to know more. We'll move on. Uh, an organization called Fair Shake has produced a report identifying the most hated ISPs in the United States. Comcast tops that list, being the most hated in 10 U.S. states, including Pennsylvania, where I live and where Comcast is headquartered. So not doing a great job with the hometown crowd there. <laughs> I've been critical of service providers and telcos, and I often get pushback from people saying it's not that bad or it's just a few customers who are unhappy. Um in this case, it says this is consumer survey. So this isn't, you know, like enterprises because surveying enterprises is usually proprietary data. But I don't think you'd see anything different. I mean, these customers just really, really dragged. Uh, and the thing is that I really liked um, is that internet providers came out dead last of all the 43 industries the American Consumer Satisfaction Index surveys consumers about behind airlines, the postal service, and even American health insurance. Group. 
<laughs> yes. And I should yes. say uh, the ACSI is a different survey from this one, but Fair Shake cited it. But yeah, if you're coming in behind health insurance in the U.S., then you are screwing up hard. Uh, so I just like to point out that this is sort of evidence that supports my perspective as a broad view. And uh, there, <laughs> next time you uh, next time you try and give me some pushback, I'm going to be a little bit more blunter about it. Um, I'd also just point out that this is also proof that my thesis that customers and employees do not matter to companies. Right now, it's all about shareholders and short-term profits. And this is an example of that. These telcos, you know, these service providers to consumers they are loathed and despised, and they do not seem to have any problems about not caring in the least. Um, so, and big telcos are exactly the same. They do not care about customer satisfaction or employee well-being. And um, just remember that when you're living your life and the choices that you make, if you can. Yes. Uh, Greg, you had uh, some quick comments you wanted to make about uh, the recent rumblings in the Chinese economy. Their, their stock market has been a little wobbly of late. Yeah, so we are not stock market analysts. This is not financial advice, of course. Uh, but I just wanted to observe that this week, the Chinese stock markets have closed early on multiple days after triggering maximum loss bumpers. So what happens there is if the stock market falls more of somewhere between 5 and 8%, the, the stock market just closes so that mm -hmm. you don't get a once a run started. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They halt the trading. And in this case, we're talking uh, Bloomberg reports that there was a seven trillion US dollar sell-off this week in Chinese stocks. In Chinese stocks, Oof. so that's almost real money, as they say in in, uh, in government these days. There's a <laughs> so there's a so a couple of quotes that I, I surfaced here. A recent survey of affluent Chinese by Charles Schwab found that more than half of them expected twenty to forty percent annual returns from the stock market. So the Chinese stock market has ramped up. And people just seem to expect that to happen forever. And so all of a sudden for it to go sideways, even to just no growth and not lose value is actually a hell of a shock to a lot of people who've never seen a falling Chinese share market, and uh, which of course here in the West, we're much more used to. And then there's other data showing that the China's consumer price index tumbled last month, falling by 0.8%, which marks the fourth consecutive month of declines, as well as the sharpest drop since September 2009, when the global economy was banking so this is just reason that you need to know about this is most product assembly in technology is done in Chinese factories and facilities. So that is, while most of the component manufacturing is done outside of China, memories made in uh, Japan, chips are made in Taiwan, uh, you know, various things are made in Korea and so forth and so on. And then it all gets shipped to a, to China where the assembly is done. And if the Chinese economy continues to have trouble, we will see disruptions to the supply chain. So keep that in your mind. Uh, Keep in mind also that the Chinese New Year is now coming. That's usually about two weeks where the factories actually shut down uh, for the whole period. And most of Chinese society sort of comes to a halt. Now, that's obviously planned for, but that will be weighing on the stock markets because people you know, don't want to be playing around the stock markets at that time. Hmm. And um, the other concern that I have is that it, as the Chinese economy deflates, that is, as you know, it gets smaller and money changes and so forth, people start getting more competitive. One thing is that it might make manufacturing in China more competitive, more cost-effective, and the reshoring that we've seen happening with the US government saying, you've got to move it out of China. A lot of companies were saying, getting it out of China is fine because China's gotten so expensive, we can actually do it mm -hmm. cheaper in the Philippines or you know whatever, yep. or Vietnam or in India or Pakistan, whatever. Um, but if this is the other case, then this makes reshoring less viable because of that. So things to watch out for, potential disruption to the supply chain, $7 trillion off a stock exchange could hurt a lot of companies. Yeah. I'd link in the show notes if you want to read up on it. Uh, we are going to finish up with kind of a gross story about toilets. Greg, you brought this to the table. Uh, the question is, does keeping a lid down when you flush reduce the spread of bacterial and viral particles? This new study says no. Uh, take it away, sir. <laughs> I didn't really know. I just thought this is the sort of thing that uh, if, if you are a sort of person who's involved in relationships, people say that you should flush the toilet with the lid down. Women seem to have a thing about that. Uh, men who perhaps, you know, don't, you know, leave the lid up and perhaps even the seat up more often. I thought this would be a great way to promote the discussion with your partner about whether flushing the toilet does result in aerosolization of, you know, material in the toilet bowl. Um, yes, I just thought it was deeply amusing to find out that no, it doesn't. There's definitely an aerosol and there's definitely something, but apparently it's not all that bad, not big a deal. So you can leave the toilet lid up. Try Try having that argument with your spouse. Yeah, just to like we're not uh, stock analysts or financial advisors. We also are not marital advisors, so you know, take yeah. that with a grain of salt as well. <laughs> well, the, so the so the gotcha, Drew, is it? It's only 
<laughs> it's only not a problem if your toilet is clean. If you're not cleaning your toilet, then it is a problem. But anyway, interesting article. Have a look. Okay. If you feel like you want to have that argument and need some ammunition, you got it. That'll be in the show notes. Uh, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our sponsor, TechBytes Conversation on securing IoT and OT devices with Palo Alto Networks. That's coming right up. Today on the TechBytes podcast, we talk about the risks that IoT and OT devices can present and how to mitigate those risks. IoT and OT can be tricky because these devices need network access, but you often can't put endpoint security agents on them. And depending on your industry vertical, these IoT or OT devices may be mission critical. And I'm thinking here about medical equipment or sensors and industrial manufacturing. Our sponsor to discuss IoT and OT security is Palo Alto Networks. And our guests are Kalyan Saddam, Director of Product Management, and Shravanti Reddy, Senior Product Marketing Manager. Kalyan, welcome, and Shravanti, welcome to the podcast. Um, what are some of the common characteristics of IoT and OT devices that make them, say, a separate category from laptops and, and smartphones? Yeah, some of the things that we talk about IoT devices, right? Let's first of all clarify what are the IoT, OT devices in the scope of our discussion today. There are many names out in the market in terms of IoT devices, OT, medical IoT, industrial control devices, and so on, right? Typically, these devices are everywhere, at your home, on the road as you're driving to work, or in your office buildings, classrooms, hospitals, critical infrastructure, water treatments, and so on. From our point of view, these devices are purpose-built devices, right? They are designed to provide a specific function. And traditionally, these devices are built for optimal performance to deliver for the whatever function that they are being uh, decided. Uh, they have really long shelf life. Uh, oftentimes they are shipped with vulnerabilities and because of their long shelf life, they often get more vulnerable uh, over their lifespan, right? Mm -hmm. Traditional security controls typically cannot apply for these devices because they are resource constrained because of memory or footprint and so on. That's basically some of the landscape in terms of IoT, OT devices. I also think a lot of IoT devices are not managed. Like we often think of edge devices as laptops or smartphones, and you can put, you know, mobile device managers on those or desktop management on those. But one way to think of IoT is all the devices you can't manage with the normal tools. Is that one way to look at it? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, again, also is one of the reasons why these devices tend to have very difficult managing them from a security point of view, yes. Mm. So let's talk about the risks that IoT or OT devices introduce to an organization. I'm thinking like, you know, if there's a security camera trained on a loading dock outside, how much of a risk is that really to my network? Well, it's one thing in terms of that security camera. And if you're losing access to that footage or somebody else is watching your security footage, but then there's a totally different problem when you think about the security camera becoming the doorway into your network. Malicious actors have shown time and time again where they are able to use this weak security posture IoT OT devices to breach into enterprise networks, right? Um, we have seen cases like, hey, fish tank thermometer in Las Vegas casino was used to breach into the casino uh, network, steal the high roller database, and actually took the database out from the through the fishing uh, uh, or fish tank thermostat into the internet. That's essentially, as you can see, IoT, OT devices can pose totally different type of risk from a, any organization point of view. Fish tank is a vulnerability. <laughs> I, have, I think that's brilliant. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure when I turn to my hacking career so that, that I keep that in mind. Start with the fish tanks. <laughs> so I guess that the point is there that these devices, again, as you mentioned earlier, because they're running software, that software could have vulnerabilities. Maybe it hasn't been updated uh, someone can uh, exploit those vulnerabilities and then they use that essentially as an entryway into your network. Absolutely. And another problem is also that malicious actors could lurk inside these IoT, OT devices, stay there for an extended period of time and avoid any type of detection. If you think about a traditional endpoint, you would have uh, agents running on them that can scan the storage devices or the memory to see if there's anything malicious going on or what type of registries or store, uh, locations or file locations are being accessed within the device, right? As far as the IoT, OT devices, because you cannot install these agent softwares, endpoint security software, you cannot detect anything that may already been present on those devices. You need to kind of watch it and take a totally different type of approach to try and secure these devices. And how does the customer's, you know, their vertical or their industry impact the risk of IoT devices? 
when it comes to IoT OT devices, right? If you think about it, most of these malicious actors are looking at these devices as a weak entry points into the network. It all boils down to what is the motivation for these malicious actors, right? If uh, depending on the customer's industry, let's say if you are a financial institution or a retail store, or if you are a hospital and the manufacturing plant, what type of uh, motivation that's driving for a malicious actor to attack such an industry kind of influence it, right? And also the type of malware that we have seen also varies based on the type of uh, what you call a lot of times, right? If you think about uh, industrial control devices, one of the very well known and documented uh, attack was a nuclear plant attack uh, where malicious actors were able to get in and basically able to change the dimensions of the uh, uranium enrichment plant so that on the surface, everything looks okay. But then when it comes to the product that actually got produced, it wasn't enriched enough and such, right? Again, um, the fish tank example, for example, uh, I quoted earlier, the if the motivation was to actually steal data, then it's a different ring, right? So the approaches that you would want to take when it comes to actually thinking about security kind of varies quite a bit as well. So I think we probably want to have a separate uh, podcast for how we go about securing each of these industry verticals and how Palo Alto Network's IoT OT security solutions are tuned to basically able to identify these uh, threats for any of the verticals that uh, each of these organizations may be in. Yeah, I think this is a topic that would really deserve a deep dive. And uh, Shravanti, I think you've got some examples, some real world examples of uh, attacks that have occurred exploiting IoT and OT devices, yes? Yes, Drew. So recently, a coffee shop in North Carolina encountered a breach in its payment system when a hacker exploited the shop's smart thermostat, like using it as a point of entry, uh, as we just talked about Kalyan, you know, at, uh, what Kalyan mentioned about Fitch Tank. Hmm. Another major furniture retail giant recently, they became a target of ransomware attack. Um, again, that's disrupting their entire operations across multiple countries. Now, these are all targeted against the company's IoT-powered platforms, and these were utilized for managing the you know smart home products. When we talk about breaches and we talk about disclosure afterward, we don't often hear people talk, point at IoT as a vulnerability. And what you're saying here is that two major cases of, you know, breaches were through IoT. Is this just more common than we hear about? Well, as Kalyan mentioned, right, uh, mm. it doesn't matter whether what vertical, you know, what industry we are talking about, retail, government, state, local agencies, banking, healthcare, they all use IoT devices, right? Mm -hmm. And these are unmanaged IoT devices. So these hackers have easy access to these devices which are connected to Wi-Fi or local networks, and that become an easy point of entry. I'd like to share a use case from one of our, you know, customer stories uh, in Turkey. So these folks are um, number one homewares providers. They have like you know, 400 stores across Turkey. They have 2,000 IoT devices like scanners, cameras, etc. These lack visibility and control, right? And it, it was getting difficult for them to manage them on you know efficiently on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. Now they were looking for a unified you know cybersecurity platform approach that needed like you know it's modern, it's integrated. Uh, and they can safeguard their expanding digital and physical environments as they were, you know, expanding their businesses. Now, mm. along with Palo Alto Network's next-gen firewalls, right, the solution also included our zero-trust enterprise IoT security, which mm. allowed them to discover, assess every device, segment them, and apply least privilege accesses, right? To so that they could secure all these future innovations uh, that they, they were coming up with. I'll end by saying, like you know, talking about one more customers of ours who are a public sector implemented our enterprise IoT security, emphasizing the importance of you know continuous monitoring and you know regular updates to these unmanaged IoT devices and system. They also took a proactive, a holistic approach to IoT security, which means, you know, doing things like training the employees about what these, these devices are. So I just want to end by saying that, you know, both these customer use cases, there has been a significant enhancement in the cybersecurity posture after implementing uh, a robust IoT security.
Yeah, so I think we've got a very good sense for what the risks are. Can we drill in a little bit more into what uh, people can actually do to mitigate these risks? Yeah, so in terms of how customers can think about going about mitigating or securing these IoT OT devices, you know, let's uh, look at, right, we talked about briefly at the beginning that, you know, if you are a traditional endpoint device, you can add an agent and then go about securing them that way and, and mm-hmm. observe maybe going on maliciously. So it all begins with understanding, you know, what is this device? If you think about, again, a traditional endpoint, you would know, okay, this is a uh, company laptop and who is the user that has logged into the device? And you are able to kind of take that understanding of the device and then uh, understand who is the user and then make a decision on what type of applications, what type of networks on your enterprise you, you have access to, right? So if you would drop parallels to that for IoT, OT devices, Typically, there is really no endpoint agent um, that you can ident- uh, install on these devices. So let's look at what other options we have. So you would want to identify these devices, right? Traditionally, they're in the market. Um, signature-based identification came in, but then they are very difficult to scale because there's so many new devices coming into the market uh, all the time. And then let's say we have that solved then you would go about uh, taking that identified device identity and start to think about where uh, you want to place this on the network in terms of which segment of the network you want to place it and then use that as a basis to control the level of access or what other devices that you may have on the device on the same network and make a uh, decision in terms of level of security that you would have. So in summary, basically, device identification, segmenting these devices on the network with uh, maybe a similar type of devices, say all the similar cameras are, as well as deciding what type of applications are where on the network they would be allowed to communicate with, right? That's how generally the different approaches exist for securing these IoT OT devices. And what's the role of zero trust here? That's a great question. So I would say zero trust has become the next leap forward in order to actually truly be able to secure these IoT OT devices. When it when you think about zero trust uh, for IoT or OT devices, you would want to identify right from the beginning in terms of is this a authorized device or what is the device that we are allowing. You want to uh, have an understanding of okay, given I know this device is a camera or a scanner or an X-ray machine in a medical facility or a uh, PLC control and industrial controls network, you want want to uh, have an understanding in terms of what are the trusted or allowed behaviors that you want to permit on your network, right? And then you would start to not only identify and allow these behaviors uh, that you would trust, but then you will also want to have a ongoing monitoring to make sure that um, your that device when it, once it's permitted on the network and it's allowed to use certain applications, it's actually doing what you what it is supposed to, right? Got it. Okay. So it sounds like I'm hearing first a device identification, then um, segmenting the network, and third, using zero trust to, to add that extra layer of security. So how is Palo Alto Networks differentiating itself in these capabilities? That's a great question. So today, the solutions out there in the market are primarily visibility only or alert only solutions, right? They would require constant signature updates to discover any additional new devices coming into the market. They do not offer any native security enforcement or forget about prevention, right? They, they don't have any such enforcement capabilities, period. And they often requires complex integrations with other uh, infrastructures, whether it is security infrastructure or networking infrastructure to orchestrate onboarding and as well as a uh, segmentation type of use cases, right? To improve the overall uh, security posture of these devices. They also require single purpose sensors being deployed all over the network, um, not only initial deployment, also ongoing management of it. So now if we were to contrast that with Palo Alto Networks, um, Zero Trust, IoT, OT security solutions that we have, we offer both visibility and security natively in one single platform. Our solution uses a machine learning based auto discovery, classification of these devices down to their make and model and even 
using our DPI and app, app ID capabilities, we are able to identify applications and the transactions that are uh, running down to their C software versions of the devices and such. We use that device identity and the knowledge about the de uh, device and the software running and the versions of them. We're able to offer passive risk assessment uh, in terms of known vulnerabilities that we have. we are able to identify weak security postures in terms of uh, potentially having default passwords still there, manufactured default passwords that never got changed. Uh, that essentially provides kind of an easy way into the net devices and such. And we use that device identification and as a crowdsource knowledge as a way to identify and establish what is normal, right? Essentially for a given camera or a given X-ray machine or a given PLC controller or a historian in an industrial network, our solution understand what is normal for them. We use that as a basis to provide policy recommendations for our customers so that you don't have to come up with those uh, uh, zero trust policies yourself. Because if you think about it, even some of the manufacturers of these devices do not have such information that they would be able to share. So we offer that type of recommendations so customers can take that and then uh, orchestrate a posture where you would only allow the trusted behaviors, right? And finally, because we are a firewall uh, platform itself, we are offering the solution on our firewall platform, whether it is virtual hardware or containerized or in the cloud, you are able to leverage all the other security inspections and uh, intrusion prevention technologies that we have within the platform as well, right? If you imagine all these devices that are either shipped with known vulnerabilities or got more vulnerable over a period of time, having this type of native security inspection and threat prevention can actually give our customers a lot more benefit in terms of um, prioritizing their vulnerabilities and getting to patching them at a certain period of time based on their business process and priorities. And as well as sometimes even extending the lifespan of these devices, which sometimes can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to actually purchase or uh, do any maintenance on them, right? So it essentially offers multi-pronged approach in terms of device identification, risk assessment, uh, providing a way of uh, segmentation and zero trust policies, uh, intrusion uh, prevention or preventing any threats that are could be exploited on the vulnerabilities. And finally, we also have a way to kind of operationalize this, right? If you think about every enterprise has many uh, existing technology stacks in terms of third-party systems, you would want to kind of make those solutions IoT and OT aware because they are traditionally blind to those solutions we would be able to take the device identity and then help you automate your workflows and streamline the operations as well. Okay, well, that does bring us to the end of our time. Uh, if people are interested in learning more about how to mitigate the risks of IoT and OT, uh, do you have any suggestions for them? Sure, so we have an upcoming uh, workshop, hands-on workshop um, that's on schedule uh, for February 15th. Um, you know, folks can join and learn more about all about the IoT security features that Kalyan just talked about um, and, uh, you know, get your hands on the product uh, for about uh, 45 minutes to one hour. Okay, great. Yeah, our audience does like to get their hands on things. So that's great. We'll have the link to that in the show notes that accompany this podcast. Uh, well, thank you to our guests from Palo Alto Networks and thanks to Palo Alto Networks for sponsoring us. And as always, thank you, the listener, for being with us. If you like this episode, you can find it and many more fine free technical podcasts and our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can hear us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts and connect with us on LinkedIn. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>